Well, God bless you guys. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're taking a bit of a break from uh, our walk through the Gospel of Matthew during this Advent season. And I would like for us for these next several weeks, and this is what we do every year during this Advent season, we focus in Scripture uh, on how the Scriptures tell us uh, to anticipate the coming of our Lord. Amen? Because if we do not look from God's Word and how this is to be, then what we have, what we end up with, is a secularized Christmas. And we can easily fall into that. Again, as, as we were lighting the candle, uh, just mentioning December 25th brought up a lot of excitement in the children in the room. Men. Men, Matthew and Jake. Right? They were excited that Christmas morning was coming. And so without God guiding us and leading us in this anticipation and joy, what we end up with is a secularized, commercialized stress. Can we just say amen to the stress? And so as we look through this wonderful time of year, it is a central theme of the Christian tradition. It is it is the grand miracle of the faith. And I want us to see that this week and next weekend particularly, uh, that, that during this season of Advent, what we are remembering and celebrating is the grand miracle of the incarnation. And apart from that grand miracle, we would be lost and abandoned and, and just left to our sin. But let's take a look at, I mean, this first Sunday of Advent, this is today. This is the Sunday morning that begins our Advent, our hope, our anticipation of the celebration of the birth of our Savior, again, on December 25th. Not that he was necessarily born that day. We don't really know. Um, but it, in our tradition, this is the day that we celebrate. The brokenness of God's fallen creation. At last, we see hope in this miracle, this grand miracle of the birth of our Savior. And, and today's text in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33, is going to give us a glimpse into the mysterious yet revealed truth. It's a mysterious truth, yet God is revealing this truth of the incarnation of God himself. And, I, and this is how I like to describe it. It's as God himself is stepping into humanity. It's not the idea that, that God is putting on the coat. He is literally stepping into humanity. That's the grand miracle. And the result of this is the birth of the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, who is holy. I mean, this week we're going to focus on Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. And then next week we'll conclude this scene between Mary and Gabriel in, in verses 34 through 38. But if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word, and let's read Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. And this is the divine message of God sent through the angel Gabriel to Mary, the mother of our Lord. Beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying 
and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for this word, this reading in Luke's gospel. This, this scene recounted by Mary herself, sharing the interaction that she had with Gabriel, your messenger. Lord, this is the moment that all of humanity longs for. All of humanity had been looking to this moment from the beginning of the fall to the point that Mary is introduced to her son who's going to be born. Lord, this is the answer. This is the grand miracle that will redeem us. This is the grand miracle that will save us. And so, Father, today in this Christmas season, as we are all exhausted from the holidays that's already begun, Lord, I pray that you would settle our hearts and settle our spirits to to listen to these words of the angel Gabriel to Mary. Lord, I pray that you would stir within us a joy and a hope, a hope that salvation is possible, and a hope that Jesus is our Savior is coming. Stir us up, Father, this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. I call this the grand miracle because it is central to the faith, and it's not just me who says this. I'm actually borrowing this from many theologians. They call the incarnation the grand miracle. Because we live in a day where the ideas of miracles are prevalent in many churches. Um, And... and and even in Christian media, there is an emphasis on the miracle. Have you had your miracle today? Almost like a cereal box advertisement. Have you had your miracle today? There's a distortion here of the idea of miracle in our many of our churches and in this day, as if, as if miracles are a consumer item. And this is the grand miracle that Jesus was born, the fact that God himself steps into humanity, the incarnation of our Father in heaven through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the incarnation. He is the grand miracle. And and this emphasis on miracles in this secular culture has, has misled many souls down a path of destruction. It's as if we can ask for a miracle in the same way that, that we go online and, and begin our Christmas shopping and, and anticipate the delivery from UPS. And that's not, you know what, that's, that's not as much of a, an excitement anymore because it used to be you could get your stuff uh, next day. I mean, it looks like now you got to wait a week. How I many people have noticed that already? So the, the, the excitement of the miracle of online shopping is now starting to fade. We got so used to one day shipping, now we got to wait seven days? What's going on? The world is coming to an end. You see where we're going here? I mean, but, but, but this passage in Luke's account, I want us to take a look at this grand miracle to give us the proper perspective here of what miracles are, especially this one miracle that without it, we would not have our foundation of faith. We would not have our savior. We would not have salvation. This is what we must get our Christian minds around. I mean, this passage here in Luke 
is the encounter from God's primary messenger, the angel Gabriel, to this young girl, Mary. We all are familiar with the story. And, this, and Mary who would give birth to the Son of God. Now Luke's account must have been Mary's personal story because we don't see this in any of the other Gospels. And we do know that Luke, the author here, he was very close uh, to Peter and he was also close to Mary. And, and later in, in, in uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 19, we, we read this, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And I think Luke put that in there to show us that Mary shared these stories with him. Without it, we would not have this intimate connection. Who else was in this scene? Mary and Gabriel. No one else would have been there. And so this had to have come directly from Mary to Luke. And so this passage is not some third-party telling of a story. It's not some afterthought of a fable or a tale. It is a real encounter with Gabriel and Mary. And this is the first-hand account from Mary, the closest person connected to the divine conception of the Son of God. Because think about this, only the mother can testify to how a baby is conceived. Only the mother can do this. Only the mother can confirm who the father is of her baby. And this passage is Mary's first-hand account of her divine conception. No human father conceived this child. Jesus has the title, the Son of the Most High, because his true father is God the Father Almighty. And the, and the emphasis here in Luke's account, because Luke is writing to a Gentile congregation here. And there is a distortion in ancient pagan cultures of pagan gods impregnating young girls for not really the best motives. And Luke is sharing this, Mary is sharing this through Luke to us to show us that this was not some twisted pagan God. This was God the Most High overshadowing Mary. And this is the grand miracle. What is the most important point to remember is the fact that the virgin conception and the birth of Jesus Christ is a miracle, but not just any miracle. It's the grand miracle because no other virgin in human history has ever conceived. I'm just going to let that lay there. No other virgin has ever conceived a baby in human history. Would y'all agree? It's what C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle. And I read this, I've read this before, but I want to read it one more time. C.S. Lewis articulates this grand miracle concept very well. Here's what he says. One is very often asked to present whether we could not have a Christianity stripped or as people who ask it say freed from its miraculous elements. A Christianity with the miraculous elements suppressed. But you cannot possibly do that with Christianity because the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, what is eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great Miracle. If you take that away, there is nothing specifically Christian left. 
There may be many admirable human things which Christianity shares with all other pagan systems in the world, but there would be nothing specifically Christian. Apart from this grand miracle of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, there would be no Christianity. It would just be another human religious practice. So the grand miracle of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is exactly that. The very heart, the very center, the very essence of our faith. Verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The emphasis here of the sixth month, you have to go back and look at verses 24 and 25 as Luke tells us of Mary's cousin Elizabeth. After these days, in verse 24, his Zechariah's wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden. And so in her sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy is when Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her what is about to happen. I mean, let's notice the scene here. Elizabeth's conception itself, a miracle, because Elizabeth and Zechariah were well beyond age of conception. They were older. That itself is a conception, and even Zechariah was... Was, was encountered by an angel of the Lord who told him what would happen. And remember, Zechariah doubted what would happen. And so he was, his voice was taken away. And so Elizabeth, this woman of age, conceived through Zechariah, her husband, a baby. And in the sixth month of her pregnancy is when Mary has her encounter. But let's think about Elizabeth's conception. It was a miraculous one because an angel of the Lord delivered God's message to her husband. And this is what he's, this is what the angel of the Lord said in chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, go, this child will go before him, who is Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist is this child, and he goes before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah would be John the Baptist, whose mission and calling was to prepare for the son that would be born from Mary. The unique blessing for Elizabeth and Zechariah was at the conception of John the Baptist it was between two humans who were beyond childbearing years, and God blessed them. Now, Elizabeth's shame here, it was redeemed through God's gift. All of it was to prophesy to come. Remember, John would be the Elijah who heralded the coming of the king. And then in verse 27 here, after we read here that in that, after that, in that sixth month, as Gabriel comes to the little village of Nazareth, verse 27, he comes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Luke tells us that the angel Gabriel came to Mary, who was engaged or betrothed to Joseph, who was of the house of David. Remember back in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 25, Matthew tells us of, of Joseph's struggle that this betrothal between he and Mary brought. I mean, Joseph, remember, was a man of righteousness, and, and he had full, he was a man of integrity. 
Yet he struggled whether to complete the betrothal and marry this young girl, Mary. I mean, he wrestled with the scandal of her conception. I mean, but the angel of the Lord enc- encouraged Joseph to not fear taking Mary as wife. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 through 25. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I mean, that's even further gospel proof and evidence of the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ and the integrity that Joseph had with this young girl. I mean, the the angel of the Lord that comes to Joseph reminds him and, and emphasizes that that which is conceived in Mary is not from another man. That which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. That right there eased Joseph's mind even though he still struggled with it all. That is, I mean, this is the, this is part of the grand miracle. And when we go back in Luke chapter one, when we look here in verses 27 and 28, Gabriel comes to a virgin, but told to a man whose name was David of the house, or Joseph, who was of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now let's compare Mary's conception. Verse 31 tells us, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary's conception was to be from the Holy Spirit who overshadows her. That's what we see in verse 35. No man would be involved in her pregnancy. Only God the Father would cause this virgin to bear a child. But the grand miracle goes much deeper then this scandal of pregnancy of an unmarried virgin girl. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Notice that a son is prophesied here. I mean, a son. Mary is to be the new Eve. As both of these mothers anticipated and celebrated the birth of a son. Now, feminist thinking have distorted this anticipation of the birth of a son to make it an evil thought. How dare you emphasize sons over daughters? Women have more rights and and more value than men. The emphasis and the celebration of a son goes back to this prophecy that there would be a son who would come and crush the head of a serpent. That's the origin of the excitement of bearing sons. That's not belittling the birth of daughters at all. It's celebrating Christ who would come. Remember, I see Mary as the new Eve because both Mary and Eve anticipated and celebrated the birth of a son 
Remember, Eve looked at the birth of a man in Genesis chapter 3, because this tells us of what is called the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the first promise of Christian hope. Because remember, God, at the, at the fall in the garden, he places enmity between the serpent and Eve. Here's what uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 remind us. And this sets up this connection between Mary, Mary and Eve. That's why I call Mary the new Eve. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. Here's what God says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then notice in Genesis 3.15, the singular he. It's not talking about plural children and generations. It's talking about the singular offspring that would come. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the very first beginning of there will be a son who comes, an offspring of Eve that will crush the head of the serpent. And then in Genesis 3.16, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now again, feminist thinking looks at that verse and they say that's why the gospel, that's why the Bible is no longer necessary because we have advanced and grown beyond that. That's not belittling women. It's your desire is for your husband because your husband and you together will bring forth a son who will come and crush the head of the serpent. The very first gospel message, the very first Christmas message of hope is found in Genesis chapter 3. As God curses the serpent and he gives promise to Adam and Eve, even though he's spelling out their consequences, he's also in spelling out the consequences, mentioning hope here. And this is the first day of, this is the first Sunday of Advent. We look forward in hope to the birth of a son. See, from the beginning of the fall in Eden and all the way through human history, women have anticipated the birth of a son who would crush the serpent's head, who would fulfill God's promise that someday a son would come to restore sinful men back to God himself. And in Luke chapter 1, Mary the Virgin, I say, is that new Eve who is favored by God to bear the Son of the Most High. So let's look here again. Go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Here is what Gabriel says. He came to her, Mary, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear what? A son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to you, uh, will give to him the throne of his father David. Verse 32 tells us a very important point. Gabriel is talking to Mary and he tells her in verse 32 about this son who is to be born. He will be great and will be called what? The son of the most high. 
That's an interesting point. It's a point we need to sit here for a minute and talk about. The Greek here for most high is from the idea of the hypostasis. Most high, the idea of the hypostasis. Now, a lot of folks are going, well, pastor, that's a bunch, that's Greek to me. It is Greek. Hypostasis is an important point, and we're going to bring that more depth of that next week as we look at the following verses. The doctrinal idea of the hypostatic union, if you've never heard of that, jot down a little note. The hypostatic union is central to the incarnation and central to the Christian faith. The hypostasis is the most high. That's the word here. Next week, we're going to get, go into more unpacking of that. But the doctrinal idea of the hypostatic union, again, is central to the Christian faith. It's central to this message of hope. If, if Jesus is not the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, then the hypostatic union is void, the incarnation is void, and the Christian faith is void. If there is no incarnation, there is no Christianity. If there is no hypostatic union of God the Father, the divine, the most high stepping into humanity, there is no hope of salvation. That's the point here. Now, now again, we're going to unpack the depths of this hypostatic union next week. But in summary, the theological idea known as the hypostatic union is important for us to remember since the truth of the incarnation is at the heart of this doctrine. I mean, we celebrate the incarnation. That's what we're doing during the season of Advent. We're celebrating the incarnation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The truth that God steps into humanity to redeem us from the fall. To answer his promise to Eve from Genesis chapter 3. That a son will come and crush the head of the serpent. God himself steps into humanity to fulfill that promise. And the hypostatic union of the divine with this little girl, this young girl Mary, to cause her to bear a son is a mystery beyond my comprehension. And any biological scientist or doctor who tries to figure out how this is possible, it's going to, it's going to blow their mind. They can't figure it out. That's the mystery of the Christian message and the hope that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're going to unpack a lot of that next week because Gabriel will explain to Mary what this grand miracle is, the incarnation of the Most High, the Son born of a virgin. I mean, this Son who was born, when we look here in verse 33, let's read verse 32 and 33 together. He the son will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. This son of the most high is also the son of his father David through the line of humanity and he will reign over the house of Jacob which was also part of the covenant and will reign forever and ever and his kingdom will never end. That's huge. I mean, the son who is born 
is celebrated just as Eve celebrated the birth of her first son in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what Eve said at the birth of Cain, her first son. Now Adam and Eve, or now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So Genesis 4, 1 is Eve's declaration And her first joy and anticipation, I have given birth to a man. Not again that men are superior, but this is the first line of hope that someday a man would come and be the Savior and the Messiah and redeem us from our sin. This man, this son of Mary here in in Luke 1, this son of God, the son of the Most High, is the promised one who again will crush the head of the serpent and will restore fallen humanity to God through his grace. That's what we look forward to during this Advent season. Amen? The son of the Most High fulfills the longing and the hope that all of humanity longs for, from the very beginning of the fall in Eden to even now, at the center of all of us, even those who do not acknowledge Christianity at all, at the center of all human conditions is this essence, this longing for hope, because even someone who is not a Christian, someone who just lives in this fallen world, recognizes that something is wrong. And this hope that we have toward Christ is at the center of all of us. And it is only through Christianity, the hope of Jesus Christ that we have, we've got the answer to that longing. That's why this season is important. And when we look here in verse 32 and 33, as Gabriel talks to Mary and says that this son of the Most High will be given the throne of his father David. That's a a further connection to the longing and the hope of the Davidic covenant that had been at play here for centuries and generations. The Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Looking forward to the hope of the Messiah that would come through David. Now has fulfilled. In verse 33, and this king, this son of the Most High, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. All of this ties back to all of the Old Testament. (laughs) From Genesis all the way through Jacob, all the way to David, all the way through the prophets, all the way to now that Jesus is born, all of this is now fulfilled. The longing and the hope of generations and centuries is now coming to pass here in Luke chapter 1. That is the hope of this season. Because the hope and the longing has been around for a long time. See, we, we, we on the other side of history now, we've missed this longing and this hope. Because we know the answer. We know that Jesus has come. We know that Jesus has fulfilled what God has promised. We know that Jesus has died on that cross, that he has risen from the grave, that the grand miracle of his birth, the grand miracle of his incarnation, continued in the grand miracle of his death, his resurrection, and his burial, and his, his burial and his resurrection. We know that it's fulfilled, so we are a little bit complacent now. Because we've got the answer. <laughs> But we've lost, I think, sometimes that anticipation and that longing and that hope, haven't we? 
That's what this season is for. That's why the first candle of Advent that we light, this is the first Sunday of Advent, the candle of hope. There's hope, folks. Now, how do we take this home? We got to remember that the divine creator, God himself, the most high, he steps into his creation, not just the creation. He steps into what belongs to him. I mean, I, I've heard it said here recently, and I just cringed when I heard it. I heard this preacher just say, well, why does the devil rule this earth? It's because God's not here. A preacher said this, that God is not allowed here, that we have to ask him to come in. I just shook my head when I heard that. I mean, nobody asked God to incarnate himself in his son, Jesus Christ. He does it. He initiates it. He planned it. He caused it. He fulfilled it. None of us asked, hey, God, uh, you know, I've got this great idea. Maybe it's going to be a good movie someday. Why, why, why don't you come in and, and become a son and be born of this little virgin Mary? And, and you know, we, we'll write books about it and we'll make movies about it. And, and we'll, we'll start this tradition called Christmas where, where merchants are going to make a lot of money off of it. Why don't you do that? Let's, let's just ask God to do this for us. That's ridiculous, isn't it? God's not anywhere waiting for us to ask. And that's the center of the gospel. That's what we see here in this incarnation message in Luke chapter 1. God chose Mary. His favor is poured out on Mary. Who challenges the whole point going, me? No way. Yes, Mary. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And you will give birth to a son. And he's going to be the answer to the promise that I made a long time ago. God initiated it. He's not waiting for us to ask. And that's the center of the gospel. And that's the beauty of it. Because those who claim that miracles are every day have redefined the word miracle. The very, the very definition of miracle is something that you cannot explain naturally. I mean, you want, you want the textbook definition, that's it. The textbook definition of a miracle is an event that occurs that cannot be explained by natural means. Who can explain that a young girl of around 13 years old, we think, conceives a son and gives birth. That goes against nature. That's a miracle. Miracles don't happen every day, folks. Now, and you could argue that the fact we wake up in the morning and breathe is a miracle in itself. But that's God's gift. <laughs> that we're allowed to breathe. But the very miracle that we're talking about of, of today, the grand miracle of Christ and his birth, the grand miracle that Jesus himself is the son of the most high. That's the point that no one can answer naturally. The miraculous conception of Jesus is the starting point of the grand miracle. 
That is Christianity. And this season of Christmas is what we are we're experiencing and remembering. We've got to remember the grand miracle here. He who is beyond all time and space. He who is uncreated and unchanging. He who is eternal. He who created all of the material world. He who orchestrates all of the natural. He descends into his own nature, his own creation. He descends, if you want to use the word, he descends into his own cosmological order. That's a big word for you. Homeschool students, I hope you're learning what cosmology is. If you need some help, parents, let me know. I'll give you some resources. Because without cosmology, we don't understand God's created order. And God steps into that. He and, and he descends further, not only just into the natural world, he descends further into the human nature. Not just, see, when we hear human nature, really what we're saying is, we're saying fallen nature. God himself, who is eternal and perfect and the most high, steps into fallen nature. That's the grand miracle. And when he does this, he descends further even into the death that we experience that only human nature knows. And he comes up out of that. And he provides salvation and the answer to death. That will keep you awake at night if you let it. I mean, and not only that, he comes up, he rises again. He resurrects not only himself, but in his resurrection, he resurrects human nature with him. All of creation is redeemed back by this grand miracle. The descent is not just to the point of the virgin conception. The descent of God, the divine, the perfect, the eternal, his descent continues through this virgin Mary, continues through the miraculous birth, further into the living human nature, the albeit sinful nature, further down to the real suffering and death, to the crucifixion. But the resurrection... That's the second part of the grand miracle. God, who is eternal and perfect, the most high, the holy, he raises fallen humanity with him in the resurrection. That's why he had to step into humanity. That's why he had to step into this fallen human nature in order to, when he comes up out of the grave, to take us with him. That's the second part of the grand miracle. God, the perfect and holy creator, redeems us. His son, Jesus Christ, the son of the most high, rises out of the grave. I mean, this grand miracle of the incarnation is that the carnal, the physical, natural world is redeemed by the divine. That's the grand miracle. Without this grand miracle, all of us would remain in a dark fallen state. That's why this time of year is so, the symbolism of darkness and light is so important for us to ponder. It's not just the fact that it's the time of year where the cat, where the, the clock shifts and the sun's not up as much, but God uses even his natural cycles 
to show us and to teach us the truth of the darkness of sin and the light that His Son brings. You see that? Without this grand miracle, without the incarnation, and without the second part of the resurrection, all of human nature, all of the darkness of human fallen nature would remain in the dark. Humanity would be left in the failed effort to redeem itself because it's impossible for us to do. So the grand miracle is this. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is so pivotal to the Christian faith. It's so pivotal to the gospel message. It, It is at this point of history, at this point of eternal purpose, where Gabriel talks to Mary that hope arrives. Amen? Hope has come. It is the point of the incarnation that the divine creator shows that he has not left his fallen creation behind, that he was always and is always now intricately involved in his created world as its sustainer and as its redeemer. God has not left us. He has not left this world. (laughs) He never did. That's the, that's the truth here of the gospel. God never left his created order. Even though man left him. And that's the center of the gospel. So let's not confuse this biblical truth with the false idea that God, with the false idea of pantheism. That's what I'm trying to get to. Let's not confuse this biblical idea that God is in his creation, and confuse it with the pantheism idea that God is in everything. That's a very subtle twist. Pantheism says that the divine is in the trees and the rocks and the water and the... No. Just because, I mean, God in his creation doesn't mean that he resides in these things and we worship these things. That's pantheism, also expressed in animism, where you worship the trees, you know, the tree huggers. Okay, that's why we make fun of them, because they're worshiping something that's not real. God created that tree. He's just not living in it. Okay, just that's what I'm trying to say. So let's not confuse that. I mean, this this incarnation of God stepping into his natural order, because this natural order is now fallen and broken, to raise fallen humanity to a redeemed state, this shows the power of God's omnipotent hand and his omnipresence of being everywhere at all times. It shows us, although that we are, that the fall of the first man and the first woman, it isolated humanity from God's holy presence. God never isolated himself. He initiates the redemption here. And that's worthy of praise. That's worthy of worship. How do we see this? Are we humbled by this? I hope so. I mean, yes, the gift of the incarnation is a gift to us. And we're celebrating this season with sharing of gifts. But it's more for God's glory. His Son, Jesus Christ, bought us with His blood. And he redeems what has fallen. And that's the grand miracle of the incarnation. So parents, I've given you enough to chew on. Now your 
children are going to say, Mom and Dad, what did Pastor Bryant say? What did he mean? All right, parents, it's your, it's your balls in your court now. You ready to speak that and explain that to your kids this Christmas season? I hope so. Kids, challenge your parents. Ask them what Pastor Bryant meant if you have questions. And parents, if you're confused, talk to me and I'll try to help. Okay? Because Why, why do I say that? I, I say that because we all can admit that the Christmas season has turned into something unchristian. Celebrate with your kids. Enjoy this season of their lives. Christmas is a great time of building memories as a family. But if Christ is not at the center of your family worship and at the center of your family celebration, what are we celebrating? It's more than just opening up Luke chapter 2 and reading the Christmas story so that you can then open the presents. It's more than that. My hope and prayer is that through these next four to five weeks, that the truth of the gospel the tr- it, that begins with the incarnation would resonate in our minds so deeply that we come to the Lord with questions and we look at his word and we say, dear God, tell me what this is. Tell me why this is so important. Change my attitude if necessary. It's a time of humility and adoration and expectancy. Amen. I pray that the truth of the incarnation would humble us all and realize why it is we worship our Savior. If we, if, if the hope that we long for is now fulfilled, <laughs> and that should stir us to worship. So let's pray. Father God Almighty, we thank you for your word. And I do pray, dear God, that you would cause us all to pause during this Christmas season. We're going to be bombarded with so many messages of commercialism and temptations to satisfy our selfish material desires that the devil will cause us not to even meditate or reflect on the reality of the incarnation. The grandest miracle of all miracles is that you, dear God, step into our sinful nature and your son, the son of the most high, he takes our sin upon himself. And so God, as we celebrate this birth of your son, remind us of how grand this miracle is, we pray. Humble us in the process. Stir us to worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.